Attorneys with the Animal Legal Defense Fund are representing justice. Now, the Animal Legal Defense Fund helped come up with the California bill. The Animal Legal Defense Fund. The Animal Legal Defense Fund. Animal Legal Defense Fund ranks the best and worst states for animal protection laws. The way our laws are currently written, it's not viewing this crime as seriously as it should be. The Animal Legal Defense Fund is suing Petland. Lawyer for the Animal Legal Defense Fund says they are in negotiation. Welcome back to Animal Amicus. Once again, I'm Nicole Pallada. And I am David Rosengard. And today we're going to be talking about what was sometimes called um, the crime that cannot be named. But we're going to name it in this podcast. David, what is this crime? So this crime, when it is indeed named, has gone by a variety of appellations throughout history. Uh, but it's probably most familiar to us as bestiality, although you'll be hearing me refer to it a lot during this discussion as animal sexual exploitation, because I think that gets more clearly at what the crime actually is about and what the, the focus is. So what we're talking about fundamentally is humans interacting sexually, making sexual contact with animals for the purposes of human sexual arousal or gratification. And this is this is a fairly uh, squeaky topic. Uh, of course, we've been talking about animal cruelty this entire season. Uh, so, dear listeners, you know that part of the talking about animal cruelty involves us actually having to discuss what happens to the animal victims in these cases. And so you've already been aware that there's a general content warning to this whole season. This episode in particular, you may want to flag, we're not going to go into visceral detail, we're not going to dwell um, egregiously on the case facts, but we are going to talk about what's happening, uh, because that's important to the law. We can't describe what is legal or illegal if we aren't willing to name the crime. Uh, having the crime be the unnatural crime that dare not speak its name is not only not helpful for our purposes, but it's not helpful for the animals specifically. So speaking of, uh, you know, not being able to name this crime and how it's not super helpful. Um, yeah, I thought I would just give an example of some of the statutory lack of specificity, I guess we could call it. So there was, um, there's this North Carolina law from 1837, which was pretty indicative of like um, these the laws at the time, and it was adapted from an English statute, like from back in the 1500s. But this law read, any person who shall commit the abominable and detestable crime against nature, not to be named among Christians, with either mankind or beast, shall be adjudged guilty of a felony and shall suffer death without benefit of clergy. And just to flag that the, the clause not to be named among Christians, that actually said buggery in the old English version of the law, but the North Carolinians dropped that word because they found the word too offensive, and so they replaced it with not to be named among Christians. Oh, wow. And then, North Carolina made yeah. it even less clear. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it's clearly, for them, it's an important crime, right? Like, not only is it the death penalty, but it's the death penalty where you are going to hell. Like you, you are not yeah. getting benefit of clergy. You don't get to issue last confession. This is important business in the context mm. of you know, Christian theology at North Carolina. So they're talking about not only ending your mortal life, but having some pretty serious implications for your soul. Yeah, that's a great point. 
and like um eventually they they dropped the not to be named among christians part and they did drop without benefit of clergy um and then that law at least until the 50s um it was if any person shall commit the abominable and detestable crime against nature with mankind or beast, he shall be imprisoned in the state's prison for not less than five nor more than 60 years. So at least by the 1950s, they had dropped the death penalty and the you're going to hell stuff. But the rest of the law is pretty much intact, abominable, detestable crime against nature um, with mankind or beast. You know, it's even though it doesn't explicitly say not to be named, it's still pretty vague and note listeners that it says with mankind or beast this is a point we'll be returning to as bestiality laws um until pretty recently were um inextricably linked with laws prohibiting uh, homosexuality as well as other sex acts between uh consenting human adults um of opposite sexes but um so i just want to make before we kind of dive in i want to make two general points First, I wanted to mention, we'll talk more about this later too, but bestiality is also sometimes referred to as zoophilia, and we'll unpack the distinction between those two in a little bit. But first, uh, two general points that are going to come up in our discussion. So while bestiality laws are somewhat in their own category with their own sort of historical trajectory, which is um, actually really interesting, like once you dive into it, sort of from a socio-historical perspective, um, one thing I noticed while researching this topic is that their path sort of parallels the history of animal cruelty laws more generally. So recall we talked about in earlier podcasts how early cruelty laws were actually about protection of property and in some cases protection of society against basically antisocial or immoral behavior. And being cruel to animals was seen as sort of a character flaw and bad for society, basically. But the animals were not really the subject of these earlier laws, whereas now they very much are. And bestiality has had a similar historical path in Western legal systems, um, where it's evolved from being a crime against something other than the animals. So in the case of bestiality, it was typically a crime against nature, uh, meaning sort of the natural order of things, and sometimes a crime against God. But modern laws against bestiality are concerned with animals as victims rather than affronts to decency, morality, society, nature, God, just like our cruelty laws generally. But unlike our cruelty laws, laws against bestiality have been linked throughout history with sodomy laws that criminalized homosexuality and, again, other sex acts between consenting adult humans. And this is the second point I want to make because it's pretty foundational to how these laws have evolved and how they were accidentally kind of wiped out in the early 2000s and how a modern crop of bestiality laws has been passed since then. So while they are now about animal abuse, they historically have been categorized with these laws dealing with sodomy. So yeah, again, not about the animal, but more about crimes of nature or sodomy. And it's worth noting, of course, that the phrase crime against nature (laughs) is the person who writes writes that language imposing a belief structure on nature. There are plenty of examples of animals in nature engaging in sodomy with each other. There are plenty of examples of animals in nature engaging in autoerotic activity. Sex is a extensive landscape and humans and animals engage in sex and sex activity in a wide variety of ways. Crime against nature as a phrase isn't so much about what is or isn't natural. It's about a social human construct that tries to make sex and sexuality about procreation. And so um, 
in that construct, it's saying that non-procreative sex, so same-sex activity, oral or anal sexual activity between members of different sexes, anything that isn't potentially going to cause children to result is naughty. Um, and in fact, could it indeed be criminal? Yes, exactly. That's such a good point. It's like crime against nature. Uh, yeah, not exactly. And it reminded me of how I was reading that, like, um, even though bestiality was wrapped up in these general sodomy laws, it, sodomy um, with an animal was seen as more severe because it crossed this the human animal boundary and it kind of like threatened the sanctity of the category human, which kind of, you know, it's this age old human exceptionalism that we see everywhere in society and law. And it's kind of like they're framing it as like a nature issue, but it's definitely um, not that. So even though the current bestiality laws are about protecting the animal with some important exceptions that we're gonna get into, it's kind of in a separate category along with one other type of crime against animals, and um, which I actually didn't know until we started talking about this episode. And David, you did a great job explaining this to me. Maybe you could enlighten our listeners sort of about the two main buckets that animal cruelty crimes generally fit into and how bestiality ends up being a bit distinct. Certainly. And, and for, our, for our listeners, this is, this is how I think about it. Uh, if you go looking into your state law, you're not going to find these clear distinctions. Uh, but being someone who professionally works with all the state cruelty laws, this is how I've come to organize them, because I think this is the best way to mentally sort out what kind of cruelty laws are out there. So as you were saying, Nicole, I see those as occupying two main categories. There are cruelty laws that involve acts of commission. So someone proactively doing something to an animal that is unlawfully cruel. Uh, so beating an animal, burning an animal, stabbing an animal, killing an animal in a way that causes them to suffer, and so forth. And of course, the details of that are going to differ depending on your individual state law, depending on what the exact language and exemptions in your state law are. But that category is all about the perpetrator does a thing to an animal, and that thing is unlawful cruelty. The second big category are acts of omission, where it's not that the perpetrator proactively does something, it's that they fail to do something they had a duty to the animal to engage in. And that was a very lawyery way to lay that out. So let me explain a little more detail. If in nearly every occasion, if you have responsibility for an animal, Maybe you're the animal's owner. Maybe you have custody of the animal. Uh, that comes with certain responsibilities. Feeding the animal, providing the animal with water, providing the animal with minimum standards of care, shelter, and so forth. And if you don't do those things, it's not that you proactively went out and abused the animal, but you still caused the animal to suffer unlawful cruelty. If you own a dog and you just stop feeding the dog, you are engaging in an act of omission. You are engaging in an act whereby failing to live up to your responsibility to that animal, you cause unlawful animal cruelty. So those are both categories under the overall umbrella of cruelty. But as you said, Nicole, animal sexual exploitation is sort of different, and it shares a difference with one other area. And I think of them as special subcategories of acts of 
uh, commission. You know, if commission is animal abuse and omission is animal neglect, then ex sexual exploitation is a particular kind of active commission, a particular kind of proactive abuse. Uh, and we'll talk throughout the rest of this podcast about why it ends up in that particular category, but it shares that distinction with animal fighting, uh, because animal fighting is specified by law as having its own set of uh, elements, its own set of offenses. And I, I think there's a few reasons why that is, um, why we don't just treat animal fighting like regular animal abuse, why we don't just say, well, you did something to an animal, you made the animal suffer unlawfully, we're going to charge you with animal cruelty. The, the practical answer is that in practice, animal fights are heavily correlated with other criminal activity. Um, and in fact, animal fights are almost inseparable from organized criminal activity. Uh, hmm. The entire point of an animal fight is to get together with typically some other human and make two animals fight each other. Usually you've got other people watching, betting on this. You have a entire support apparatus of breeding, transporting animals, moving them around, facilitating taking and placing bets, facilitating collecting the money, facilitating running the fights themselves. And then you have a whole host of criminal activity going on around the fight. Because when you get people together for an animal fight, you've got a large amount of people engaged in an illegal activity that's secretive. And so if you want to do other illegal stuff, it's a great venue. So animal fights mm. turn into basically big criminal swap meets. You've got mm. drug trafficking, gun running, sex trafficking, oh. illegal gambling, the whole gamut. Uh, because you've got this built-in audience of people hanging out secretly doing illegal stuff for a fair amount of time. Animal fights, big animal fights last for a while. There are multiple bouts. Um, mm. And so if you're planning to exchange money for drugs or guns or uh, sex traffic people, um, it's a pretty great venue for doing that. It's pretty convenient. So I think there are practical reasons why animal fighting is treated as an organized criminal activity, is treated as racketeering in many states, mm -hmm. because it is an organized criminal activity. It's different than one person beating their dog or one person stabbing their boyfriend's cat. Those are awful things, but they're not an organized ongoing criminal activity in the same way. Yeah. It's kind of hard to do animal fighting by yourself, huh? Actually, <laughs> like you really, yeah, really I, just require. <laughs> it really oh, does. I mean, and, and most of the examples I can think of where people are doing animal fighting by themselves are people training animals for fights mm. with other, mm -hmm. that will involve other humans. People will do test bouts or training bouts with animals in their in their fighting program and with the goal of eventually being able to fight those animals in other exhibitions. But there's also a an almost a philosophical and jurisprudential reason why animal fighting gets picked out as being a special subcategory of animal cruelty, of animal abuse. And that has to do with 
the the way it impacts the animal and, and how animal fighting is from the animal's lens, from the animal's perspective. Animal fighting in the way it's done in these organized competitions is not natural to animals. Animals in the wild don't fight in arenas until one of them dies. That's just not a thing that happens. Uh, if nothing else, it's a really bad evolutionary strategy. It's not a good way to pass on your genes to future generations. So even the ancestors of, for example, fighting roosters, um, if they meet each other in the wild, they will fight for territory, they'll fight for mates, but they're not going to fight in an enclosed space until one or both of them pass away. They're going to fight until one of them gives up and leaves. Um, and I think this the the way that animal fighting depends on humans manipulating and controlling every aspect of an animal's life to try to get them to fight and to get them to fight harder is most evident with dogs. Um, and dogs, of course, have a history that's almost inexorably intertwined with that of humanity. Dogs, depending on who you ask, either humans domesticated them or they self-domesticated or we domesticated alongside each other. Dogs and humans have been together in this journey of civilization for a long time. And individual dogs develop very close bonds with individual humans. And it's that bond that is used as leverage by dog fighters to get the dogs to fight. Fighting dogs aren't doing it because they really, really want to hurt another dog. They're not doing it because there's anything in them that says, yes, I want to sit in this pit and fight until either I or this other dog are dead. They're doing it because they believe that's what they should be doing to make their humans happy. They believe that's their job for the human and that that relationship between human and dog is is leveraged in a variety of ways uh, by dog fighters to get the dogs to be more more game, to fight harder, to fight longer. Uh, and, and that's something that I think is represents a deeper betrayal of the animal. Uh, it's it is awful when animal abuse happens. That is a physical injury to the animal. But there is a deeper ongoing harm to the animal when you manipulate every aspect of its life, literally from the moment that animal is born to the moment it dies. When you manipulate what they eat, where they live, how they exercise, how they're allowed to socialize with other animals, and do that all in the service of getting them to believe that what they need to do is fight for you. Um, that is... It's something that I find powerfully disturbing. And I think that in some ways our animal law fighting laws recognize that that is a deeper problem and a problem that is an offense that is worthy of being highlighted as particularly problematic. Uh, and that parallels in the extent that it's something that society has highlighted as particularly problematic. It parallels the history of uh, animal sexual exploitation, as Nicole has, has alluded to, we have socially highlighted that as particularly problematic. The reasons why we've gotten there, however, may be kind of different. <laughs> yes. So part of why bestiality is in a separate category is because of this historical linkage with laws regulating sex. But it's also that people are squicked out by it to use a technical term, um, it's taboo. And, you know, taboos are present 
In all societies, there are basically prohibitions on behaviors that are considered excessively inappropriate to the point um, often of repulsion. And taboos can be based in religion, but they also can be rooted in uh, cultural norms. They involve ideas of the forbidden and the sacred. And taboos not only forbid certain behaviors, but often um, talking about them also. So you know, the we can't utter this crime business to some extent has lingered to where politicians sometimes don't want their names on legislation that talks about having sex with animals because it is this taboo subject. Um, and I think, you know, if they weren't in a separate category and were just folded into cruelty laws, this wouldn't be such an issue. But bestiality laws do tend to stand off on their own, David, as you mentioned. Yeah. And and it does have a real impact legislatively. I've I've certainly been involved in conversations around trying to pass laws in the states that still don't have uh, prohibitions on animal sexual exploitation. There's a handful left at this point uh, where the feedback we get is that lawmakers don't want their names associated with these bills because they don't want that to be the big media story. They don't want when you Google their name for a news story about bestiality to come up. Um, you know, even though that story would be about how they're trying to take action to prohibit animal sexual exploitation. Um, and, and that has that has an impact on our ability to actually do something about this. You know, it has an, it has an impact on the ability to address that kind of behavior. Yeah. Definitely. Like you said, not not being able to name a crime, not wanting your name anywhere near a law. <laughs> These are kind of obstacles to uh, modernizing our laws on sexual animal. Yeah. Darn it. Animal this, sexual exploitation. <laughs> yeah. The squick factor is real, uh, <laughs> even though, of course, not talking about it doesn't mean it's not happening. Uh, oh. And ironically, states where people are so unwilling to discuss this that they won't pass laws addressing it. Uh, I assure you, there are some uh, very particular parts of the internet where people are engaged in all kinds of conversation about those states and what they might be able to do there lawfully. Hmm. That's interesting. I want to hear more about your research maybe a, a little later. I yeah, I, I'm sure that in, in preparation for this episode, you and I have very interesting Google searches <laughs> Yes, definitely. Um, and one thing I came away with is definitely this is happening, whether we talk about it or not. We don't have hard numbers on it. It's hard to study. People don't want to admit to it for obvious reasons, but it's definitely happening. Um, and so this might be a good uh, point to sort of back up a little bit to talk about some of the historical context and this is going to be extremely truncated because there is a lot. And we'll put some good sources in the show notes for um, anyone who wants to take a deeper dive because the history, history of bestiality laws is actually really fascinating from an animal studies perspective. And there's like a lot to unpack, way more than I realized when we embarked on this. And way back when we said, do you think we have enough material to do a whole podcast on bestiality? And lo, did we find that we <laughs> there's plenty of material. Yeah. When we were doing our, our outline run through, we were like, oh my gosh, <laughs> we, we have so much actually. <laughs> this is going to be, yeah. it, I don't think great is the right word. It's going to be interesting. And here we are. Yeah. So bear with, so join us, dear listeners. We're about to take a deep dive into the history of bestiality law. Yes. So while bestiality is taboo, depictions of 
Humans having sexual relations with animals are actually pretty common throughout all of human history, um, but so also has been discussed and punishment for doing it. Um, I was actually reading that laws around bestiality are one of the main sources of evidence for historians um, for finding evidence of the practice historically, which makes sense because it's not something people really talked about openly. And, you know, you can kind of look to when and where laws emerge to suggest that, you know, this the practice was happening. But um, so depictions of bestiality have a long history in human culture as well, particularly in art. There's like cave drawings from the prehistoric prehistoric era depicting humans having sex with animals. This is a theme that shows up again and again in folklore and, and mythology and you know, with the art depictions, and there are a lot of those, um, we don't know if they depicted what people were actually doing at the time or if they were more symbolic. So, you know, we can't necessarily take them literally. Uh, sometimes they reflect anthropomorphism of animals rather than historical fact. But the point is that this is not like a new or modern concept, although as we as we noted earlier, it is hard to get data on this. There's some there's some stuff from Kinsey from the 40s, um, which suggested a high number of people had sexual relations with animals. Um, super high if you grew up on a farm, but that and, and by, I should give some context to that. I think it was something like five percent and eight percent of just men and women having had sexual relations with animals, and it was something like. Um, 50% or a little higher than 50% for people who grew up on farms. So, um, that it, um, it was, it was like pretty high based on that research, but that data has been called into question now for, um, sampling bias issues. So I was reading that a high number of the research participants in that study were prisoners. So not representative of the population at large. And, you know, there's not, besides that, like very old and also questionable data, we don't really have like a lot of stats on this. There's plenty of like yeah. anecdotal stuff and stories and stuff. As you were saying, Nicole, it's, it's a hard area to get data on because it not only is generally animal sexual, sexual exploitation illegal, but it's very taboo. So it's hard enough getting people to admit to the crimes they're doing so you could put together a research study. It's even harder when the crime they're doing is one that socially is so unacceptable that people don't even want to use the name. Uh, it's a lot yeah. easier, for example, to do a research study on how many people take illegal drugs because we've got a certain social comfort with talking about drug use, talking about whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it should be legal, whether it should be illegal. The social discomfort, talking about this particular kind of animal abuse, animal sexual exploitation, makes it really hard to get good data on it. So we're not exactly sure, but certainly anecdotally and certainly you know, working in criminal law, uh, I, I can say that it is happening. There, there are cases of animal sexual exploitation um, happening around the country on a not irregular basis. We just don't exactly know how many, how often, or where they're distributed. I came across so many just in my research. Like I wasn't even looking at that particular issue, but just so many just random news stories here, there, everywhere, like about about it. And that's a really good point too about the ga gathering data. I mean, that's an inherent um, sort of issue when you're doing survey research anytime with, with humans is that, you know, there's this uh, sometimes... Uh, desire to say the socially acceptable answer and you want to please the interviewer and like there's all kinds of like um, reasons why 
data like that has to be taken with a grain of salt. And when you're talking about something as taboo as this, then yeah, absolutely. It, it makes it even harder. And so, yeah, that's without going into a whole uh, dissertation about uh, serving <laughs> construction and uh, met methodological problems when you're asking people about their behavior. But um, this, I think, is even, even more difficult for the reasons you mentioned. You know, one of the reasons that bestiality is taboo, in addition to religion and this idea of the natural order of the world, um, there's also other boundary work going on here, too, that I think helps maintain it at that level of cultural taboo. And that's uh, sort of this policing, in some ways, this, this boundary between humans and other animals. And you see ideas about, quote unquote, lowering oneself to the level of, of beasts and how this is like seen as like um, just an extra bad thing to do. <laughs> Not only are you having a kind of sex that, that we don't like, but you're, you're lowering yourself and you're sort of degrading humanity by doing this. And and so a lot of this was informed by religiosity and religious ideas, but there are other sociological factors at work too that end up echoing other prohibitions against uh, certain types of sexual activity. But I think I mentioned this earlier, but I was reading that buggery or sodomy in the bestiality context was seen as worse because it did cross the species divide and degraded the sanctity of the human. Um, so again, this human exceptionalism is at work with like sort of propping up this boundary between humans and all other animals. And um, the foundation of our current taboo I was reading emerged in the 1500s and 1600s, at least in the Eurocentric context. And so the, the belief in the 1500s was that an animal can impregnate a woman and that she'd give birth to a monster. So around this time, the fear shifted from sin to this idea of, uh, quote, species pollution as well. And so this idea of species pollution was also linked with colonialism. So while there was fear of animal-human hybrids, this fear tended to stem from the fear of the monstrous human other in colonial lands. So um, I was reading that it's likely colonialists were bringing back descriptions of humans, depicting them as animals, which contributed to this fear and disgust and also fascination. And so there's all these links, you know, it's too much to get into here, but between bestiality laws and colonization and animalizing the racialized other, fears about bestiality linked with like issues of increased control over women's sexuality, as well as same-sex relations, um, ideas of the monstrous other. Um, so there's all kinds of like interesting issues to unpack there and some very interesting reading on the subject. Um, I'll just mention, we can put this in the show notes, but there's this book called Gender and Sexuality in Critical Animal Studies that has um, a couple interesting chapters I was reading um, one is called The Zoo Closet, and it goes into um, this, I guess that's a good segue into talking about zoophilia, because I did want to note the difference between bestiality and zoophilia, and this chapter in that book is a, is a, in, has some interesting info on that. But David, were you going to say something? I just want to pause and <laughs> let you jump in. Oh, yeah. I, I, mean, I, was, I was really excited about what you were describing <laughs> right now, because, well, the intersection of animal law and gender studies is is relevant to my interests. That's kind of one of my jams. But mm. I think it's, I think, in particular, how you're highlighting the way that our modern concern around bestiality is in part about, you know, grows out of a history uh, that is about being concerned about boundaries, uh, you know, about the early modern creation of 
what will turn into the concept of race as we know it in the modern world. Uh, early modern concerns about ethnicity, nationality, culture, civilization levels, um, and the need to, in that, con in that framework, the need to maintain these rigid boundaries. This is similar to how, and again, this is something you alluded to earlier, how the origins of animal cruelty law, as those of you who listened to some of our earlier episodes may recall, the origins of modern cruelty law aren't always about people being concerned about animals. In fact, they're usually not about people being concerned about animals. They're about property protection. They're about social mores. They're about concerns that aren't relevant to the animal's experience. But over time, they shift to being about the animal, and the law changes as a result. Similarly, modern sexual ex animal exploitation laws are much less about a crime so frightening, so boundary challenging that we can't even name it. It's much less about the concern that we're going to have monstrous chimeras born out of the result of human-animal couplings. It's much less about the creation and maintenance of these firm sociological constructs than it is about really interrogating what the animal's experience is and the degree to which an animal is being used for someone else's ends without the animal's benefit or without the animal's consent. And that's something I think we'll talk about uh, coming up shortly. But before we get there, we do, we should really talk about the distinction between zoophilia and bestiality and, and also why people engage in this behavior in the first place. Yeah, and so sometimes these terms are used interchangeably, but zoophilia refers to the sexual attraction to animals, whereas bestiality is more about the act ex itself of having sexual contact with an animal. So um, zoophilia is one definition is, you know, having this persistent sexual interest in animals that may include an emotional bond with animals. It may include like perception of the animal being in love with the human. Like often there's uh, a, a relationship and some uh, genuine um, feeling and again, a sexual interest in animals that a person may or may not act on. Bestiality, again, is the is the act. And bestiality, um, there can be a number of different uh, reasons um, around that, some of which are not about arousal. And we'll talk about that when we get to some of the carve-outs where bestiality is, in fact, legal uh, currently. But so bestiality is the act. Zoophilia is this uh, sort of uh, sexual interest. And then zoosexuality is sometimes used too uh, to designate uh, feelings and attractions toward animals as a sexuality akin to homosexuality. It tends to be used by people who self-identify um, as zoophiles, but it's a more neutral label than zoophile. So they tend to use that. And um, it's zoophilia is also what's referred to now as a paraphilia. So um, in the DSM-5, which is the current version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the, the huge tome that the American Psychiatric Association puts out periodically every uh, several years. It's basically like um, the classification of, uh, of mental disorders, and uh, it defines paraphilia as any sexual interest other than sexual interest in genital stimulation or preparatory fondling with phenotypically normal, physiologically mature, consenting human partners, which I actually didn't know that was the definition of paraphilia. Um, I think it's an, inter it's an interesting way to define it. It's basically 
either a kink that you engage in with a consenting adult, or it's something you do that's sexual without a consenting adult. Mm -hmm. Either of those would be a paraphilia. Am I, am I hearing that right? I think so. So any yeah. sexual interest other than general stimulation or fondling with phenotypically normal physiological mature consenting human partners. So yes. Right. So if you've got a non-consenting adult partner, then, then you've right. got a paraphilia issue. Or if you're hanging out with your consenting adult partner or partners and you're like, well, there's this thing that I really think is interesting. This is my cake. It has nothing to do with uh, my bits and your bits or us getting our bits ready, uh, then that would be also a yes. Yeah. And there it's an interesting go. point you raised. Yeah. It's interesting because actually in the latest DSM, the DSM-5, they added disorder. So the definition I just read is paraphilia. But if you add um, any intense and persistent sexual interest other than blah, 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 that's how a disorder, how, how they're defining a disorder. So it's like, Without the intense and persistent, it's, um, you know, just, it's not, it's not a disorder. It's just like, I guess, um, this interest that you have that is, um, well, you know, these used to be referred to as sexual perversions or sexual uh, deviations. And as you can imagine, this concept has changed over time and social context, there's tons of debate as what counts as a disorder and should be listed in the DSM, not even, not just paraphilias, but basically every time it comes out, a new version of the DSM, there's like revisions, including new disorders. There's others that are discarded as no longer being disorders. And the history of that is fascinating on its own, but like currently it, it recognizes eight paraphilias. And um, then I think of the eight, there's also a category called specified paraphilic disorder and unspecified paraphilic disorder, which replaced, it used to be not otherwise specified. And so zoophilia is lumped under specified paraphilic disorder currently. Oh, interesting. And it is interesting. And other yeah. examples of in that category are um, telephone scatologia, which I had to look that up, but it's obscene calls, obscene calls, uh, necrophilia, zoophilia, your corpophilia, your clismophilia, and urophilia. So these are some other examples that are li listed under um, specified. And, you know, you also find, you know, pedophilia and disorders like that under the, the eight yeah. recognized which... <laughs> my, my suspicion, and here to be clear, uh, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a mental health practitioner by any means. Uh, so I say that with that very large grain of salt. But my my suspicion is that that distinction between a paraphilia and a paraphilia disorder has to do with the sort of the notion that something becomes a disorder when it's having such an impact on when it's a on big enough life. part okay. of your life that it's impacted your life. So you know, if you are someone who is really sexually into high heeled shoes. Um, but you're able to, you know, get through your day without that distracting you from your job or interacting with people who are wearing high-heeled shoes or doing anything else, then you have a paraphilia for high-heeled shoes. Um, you know, you've got a kink, but you don't necessarily have a high-heel shoe disorder. Whereas if I'm understanding this correctly, um, 
you know, if you in fact are incapable of interacting normally with other humans out in the world, because they might in fact be wearing high heeled shoes, then that would be a disorder. I mean, that's exactly how disorder is, is, is defined as how much it interferes with your everyday life. And, and things, I, I, one of my best friends is a clinical psychologist. So we talk about this a lot. Um, and that's, it, it, it raises the question for me though, of why, I guess I'm not sure why paraphilia is that aren't disorders are in the DSM because I thought it was the the book of uh, mental disorders. That's something a question I'm raising I don't know. We, <laughs> right now. Maybe we'll do a, a special like end of season yeah. wrap up episode where we just do like follow up on issues and we'll <laughs> yeah. go, we'll track down a mental health practitioner and ask them. But I just wanted to point out like when we're talking about. Uh, the DSM and how there's lots of debate over what belongs in there and what doesn't belong in there. Homosexuality was famously listed as a mental disorder until 1974. And so not to compare zoophilia with homosexuality, but of course they are intertwined based on the history of sodomy laws. And plenty of scholars do actually interrogate this issue critically and thoughtfully and I'll recommend the law review article that I found very thought provoking that you recommended to me, David, we can put it in the show notes, but um, it, it sort of unpacks the rationales for bestiality laws, whether um, they're rational and consistent, particularly with the ways we treat animals in other contexts without their consent, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, more later. Um, and, you know, in the, in the, in this paper, they also explore arguments that either analogize zoophilia to pedophilia or homosexuality and sort of which is like, uh, sort of makes more sense. And then they they offer sort of a new rationale for justifying. They, they sort of go through and, and debunk a few different ones, but then they offer like um, a different rationale. Um, and it, it's an interesting article, but just point being that like, we might, I, I feel like, oh, I don't want to compare homosexuality with um with zoophilia, but like a lot of serious scholars are looking at that issue because these, the history of these two concepts is just so like interlinked and, um, bestiality being an act of sexual contact, um, that can fall under a number of different, uh, contexts, including ones that are legal and, but zoophilia is a bit distinct because it encompasses this identity. Um, and I, I just wanted to note that like, it's kind of interesting. There's this zoophilia, uh, zoophile liberation movement that believes that gay rights movement gives them kind of a blueprint for their own acceptance, eventual acceptance. This is something I wasn't aware of until I started doing this research. I, again, we oh, don't know I've how big. Thoughts. I, <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. that. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned David, like the nineties and the advent of the internet and how it kind of created a space for people with this interest to come together. And, um, this, the zoophile liberation movement was born online in the early nineties. And they sort of take this stance that this longstanding taboo and the disgust, um, and bigotry around zoophiles, a product of like biblical beliefs. And, you know, they really position themselves as like a, sort of a, the new uh, civil rights civil rights movement around sexuality. And uh, I also came across um, ZETA, which is Zoosexuals for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. I don't know if you've heard of this group. I, I don't know if they're still around. I found a webpage about them online and they have a list of seven principles and like one of them is consider the well-being of an animal companion as important as one's own, place the animal's will and well-being ahead of one's desires for sexual gratification. It says to censure those who practice and promote animal sexual abuse. So just as an example, uh, again, we don't know how big this community is, but they definitely 
do not consider themselves as engaging in animal sexual abuse or exploitation, and they um, consider themselves a um, a legitimate sexual orientation. Um, so I think probably that's all I wanted to say about zoophilia. I just wanted to like flag it as as sort of a, a separate thing from um, bestiality, which is both a little bit more broad and a little bit more narrow. <laughs> well, it, it depends on what we mean by bestiality. You know, if by bestiality, we, we just mean the physical conduct, you know, physically causing contact between uh, the genital anal region of a human and the genital anal region of an animal or you know any part of a human with those parts of an animal or vice versa, uh, then that covers a whole range of activity. You know, that covers everything from people literally having sex with animals to you know, vets performing surgery on the genital regions of animals. Uh, contact itself is not a crime. Contact itself is just a description of what happens. Uh, the crime typically is going to be more specific. And we'll, we'll talk about what that is um, in a moment when we talk about the history of how we go from that older era of laws that dare not speak their name um, you know, the unnamed crime against nature to laws that actually use their big kid words and tell us what is criminal, which you know, speaking as a journey practice tip, it's pretty important if you're going to criminalize behavior to use words that talk about what you're actually criminalizing. Um, if you if you cannot be brave enough to discuss what you are doing, uh, what you are trying to criminalize, then you are doing it wrong. Uh, and in fact, you are teeing up some, some uh, constitutional due process problems for future attorneys in the field. So please, if you're trying to pass a law that criminalizes something, use clear enough language that everyone knows what you are talking about. That's a great tip. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's try to write laws that are coherent and understandable. Uh, as someone who has to work with those laws, I thank you in advance. I do want to talk about some of the other reasons people engage in animal sexual exploitation because it's not just about people who are sexually aroused by engaging in activity with animals, engaging in sexual contact with animals. There are a host of other reasons. There is a fundamental difference between sexuality that keys off of the informed consenting activity of equitably situated actors, um, you know, people who are able to understand what is happening and able to agree to it and versus sexual activity that doesn't involve consent, that doesn't involve people who are or actors who are able to understand what is happening and consent to it. Uh, so we, there is a fundamental difference between activity between uh, same-sex adults, activity between different sex adults, and an adult engaging in sexual activity with a child. That is a different thing. Uh, similarly, I quite happily argue that there is a difference between someone engaging in sexual activity with a dog or a horse or a cat or a chicken or what have you, and someone engaging in sexual activity with another consenting adult human. 
I understand that there are people who are engaged in a political project to try to describe those as the same. Uh, some of those people, as you just, as you indicated, Nicole, are doing it because they themselves uh, are identify as being sexually attracted to animals, and they want to engage in that activity with less legal interference. Some people are drawing that comparison not because they themselves have any interest in animals, but because they find it a convenient way to attack queer sexuality. Um, you know, people who equate consenting relationships between same-sex adults um, to pedophilia or bestiality are not doing that to try to help pedophilia or bestiality. They're doing that to try to attack queer sexuality. Um, and that's there's a long history of that in the law around queer rights and the law around uh, sexuality. Um, and I think that those, those attacks really miss the point, which is not, it's not about what someone finds sexually compelling. It's about do people have the ability to engage in sexually compelling conduct with other consenting individuals? Um, and some individuals can't consent because they are, not of age, or they are, you know, animals. Some people don't agree with that. I'm just going to point out. I know they don't. In that, <laughs> that book that I mentioned, Gender and Sexuality and Critical Animal Studies, one of the chapters is Can the Animal Consent? And, you know, this person talks about how the focus on consent reveals these inconsistencies. Um, in human thinking and policymaking. I'll just read the quote. She says, animals' ability to consent is seen to be limited or non-existent. To argue animals can express willingness or unwillingness might be seen as anthropomorphizing them. To deny it entails an anthropocentric dismissal of their sexual autonomy and complexity. Um, and then they go into, you know, the analysis of consent. We see this a lot. It reveals that humans accept the use of animals for human benefit, including eating them, but they object to human-animal intimacy, recognizing the potential abuse in that relationship, but not caring basically about the pain and suffering on the kill floor and they so that they privilege consent in sex while ignoring it in most other cases which we don't because we are against killing animals as well but i think it is an interesting question about why why are people so concerned with animals consenting to sex when we don't care if they consent to being killed or so many other ways in which they use yet them and then i think also sometimes in other contexts we argue that animals can consent and can tell us their preferences. We say that they are capable of communicating pleasure and pain. Um, they have non-reproductive sex themselves. Um, and I'm not arguing for, I'm not, I'm just saying there is a, a serious argument out there that's not trying to sort of attack this argument, at least in this book, I think it's coming from sympathetic individuals who are sympathetic to queer rights and not trying to tear it down or anything. And so it's, I just wanted to put that out there that while we may say that they can't consent, some people would take issue with that. And I think yeah. there's there's good arguments against it, too, though, like because when we talk about how we've bred animals, a lot of times, you know, they have uh, docile natures and they want to please us, kind of like what you were saying back with um, animal fighting, dog fighting particularly. And so, like, what does consent mean when there's such a power imbalance, when we're talking about animals that we have bred and they have behavioral characteristics we've um, bred into them? And so is there any meaningful way they consent? I, I, I agree with you. I, I, don't, I think there are important and good faith and really interesting and useful conversations around consent going on in this area. And I wasn't trying to say that those, those conversations don't exist. I was simply saying that a lot, I find a lot of the equating of uh, 
activity, sexual activity that involves an inherent degree of legal non-consent with activity that involves legal consent to be problematic. Um, mm. you know, we'll, I think we'll, we'll talk in a bit about uh, you know, the, the, the inconsistent ways that is, as society, we treat the notion of animal consent, the fact that we do stuff to animals all the time, they don't consent to, and why sometimes that's okay with us and why it isn't. Uh, but I think certainly, at least within the law, there's a big difference between saying these adults who are able legally to consent to activity with each other are doing something that they all agreed to, they all understand, versus this adult is doing something with someone who, by virtue of being a child, by virtue of being an animal, etc., is incapable of consenting. Um, there may be some animals, for example, for whom the law doesn't fully, that law doesn't fully take into account their situation. You know, there are rather, rather infamously, for example, there's a, a very famous animal uh, media character who uh, certainly oh, seemed right. <laughs> to enthusiastically wanted, want to engage in sexual activity with the humans around him. Uh, Flipper the dolphin, Flipper being you know, a, a character, much like Lassie was a character, uh, Flipper was a dolphin character played by a variety of different dolphins on television and film. And Flipper apparently was rather notorious for trying to get uh, physically amorous with uh, some of his his uh, human co-stars. He would rub up against them in the, you know, when they were filming uh, in the dolphin tank or in whatever uh you know, watery scenario they were in, and no one was trying to get Flipper to do that. In fact, they had to edit around it because mm -hmm. that would have been right, quite right. a shock to the audience. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to argue that correct. Flipper wasn't into that. And we know that dolphins on their own in the wild engage in all kinds of sexual activity for pleasure. We know that dolphins engage in masturbatory activity. We know that dolphins do all kinds of sex stuff. That's how dolphins roll, apparently. Um, so can a dolphin and consent? Who knows? There's interspecies know. sex too that happens that I learned about. It's rare, but like, I don't know if you heard about the monkey and deer sex that was happening. There's a whole... Um... I have heard about that. Okay, I, cool. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting issue. Um, yeah, I did too. I think it's, it's, it's important for us within the legal context to acknowledge that our laws may not be able to hit every specific fact scenario we're trying to come up with laws that address most of the facts and areas um, and that are just and equitable and are as good as they can be. Uh, so perhaps there is a world out there where we figure out that Flipper the Dolphin can tell us that he really wants to have sex with this particular person or this particular mm -hmm. dolphin, or he really wants uh, you know, access to that dolphin sex toy. And then he will have consented to that. That'll be great. And we could write that into the law. The law could have an exception for sexually adventurous dolphins. But mm -hmm. until we get there, there are animals who pretty clearly don't feel the way that Flipper the Dolphin does. And we need to have a law that covers them as well. Uh, and this is probably a good time to talk about reasons other than sexual attraction that people engage in sexual contact with animals. So we've talked about humans who get off on doing sex stuff with animals. Now we've talked about dolphins who get off on doing sex stuff with other dolphins, with humans, with 
objects with all kinds of stuff. Uh, so let's talk about the other big piece of this. And that's, there are a lot of occasions where people engage in sexual contact with animals when it's not about that human's sexual arousal. Um, it may be about the sexual arousal of other humans. For example, people engaged in the production of animal porn are not themselves always or you know, even necessarily often turned on by what they're doing. They are getting paid. They are performers. The audience purchasing, watching that animal porn are getting off on it. Um, there are occasions where people will engage in sexual contact with animals as a means of expressing control or violence in the same way that a human sexually assaulting a hum another human is, that's not a crime of eroticism. That's a crime of control. That's a crime of violence in the same way there are certainly instances of humans engaging in sexual activity with animals, not necessarily because they are particularly erotically into animals, but because of the dynamic of violence and control that that creates for them. Uh, there are episodes where humans will engage in sexual contact with animals uh, as a means of leveraging, harming, or controlling other animals. There are, for example, domestic violence scenarios where the human DV victim will be pressured or manipulated into engaging in sexual contact with an animal by an abuser who will then use that as a means of humiliating the victim or blackmailing the victim. Uh, and there seems to be a certain degree of human-animal sexual contact where it's not about the human being a zoophile, it's not about the human being particularly erot interested erotically in animals, it's just about the human viewing the animal as a convenient sexual object in the yeah, same way that a human might view a sex doll, a vibrator, any other kind of object that you have, any object that you would have, that you, you would use sexually. Of course, animals aren't objects. Animals are not things. Animals are living creatures. And so it's not the same, but there are humans who treat them the same way. Um, and I think that's, if I recall, that's part of what makes that Kinsey data you referred to earlier difficult to parse in terms of what it says about sexual attraction, because it seems, as I recall, some of the people that Kinsey's, the Kinsey study ends up looking at we're not actually interested in animals as sex partners. They weren't animal interested in animals as erotic phenomenon. They were just interested in a physical sensation having to do with getting themselves off. And an animal was a convenient way to do that. So there are a lot of reasons people do sex stuff with animals. And there are even more reasons why people engage in sexual contact with animals. And we've discussed you know, how some of those could fall into a medical category. Also, in modern animal agriculture, there's a lot of human-animal sexual contact because it is not really possible at this stage in the history of animal agriculture to operate a factory system and have animals reproduce naturally. Uh, having a factory farm, whether it is a dairy farm where you need cows 
to be continually getting pregnant, giving birth. You need to take their calves away, and then that's why cows have milk. Then you're able to milk them. Or a hog farm where you need baby pigs to be born on schedule. You can't have them mm -hmm. just having sex when they want to and reproducing naturally. You need mm -hmm. them born on schedule so they grow to a scheduled size on your factory timeline. Or a lot of modern commercial turkeys who have just been bred so large that they physically can't have sex with each other. The only way for them to reproduce is artificial insemination. Uh, there's a lot of cases where the way factory farmed animals get pregnant and give birth is through human sexual contact. That has nothing to do with the human being interested in the animal sexually. It has nothing to do with the human having a sexual stake in the outcome, but it is contact. And that is part of the story of why it's hard to get new laws around these issues, because mm. anytime you start passing laws that talk about humans and animals and sexual contact, the agriculture industry gets very nervous, even though inevitably um, what they're talking about is going to be exempted. Um, yeah. And this may be this may be a good moment for us to talk about how we ended up in a scenario where we even have the prospect of new, new laws to begin with. Why those old laws, those laws that only referred to this as the unnatural crime against nature, why those old <laughs> laws went away? Yeah, definitely. We've alluded to uh, earlier that, you know, so does some of these older laws got invalidated pretty recently. Um, so, yeah, returning to the to this uh, notion of crimes against nature involving mankind or beast, um, something important happened in 2003 that um, ended up invalidating those old laws. And that was the Supreme Court case, uh, Lawrence v. Texas. Uh, David, do you want to talk about the effect of that ruling on laws criminalizing sex with animals? Yeah, certainly. Um, and this is not a case that we talk about often in the animal context because it's a huge case and it's a huge case for humans. So we've got some gentlemen in Texas. They are all adults. Uh, and two of them are engaging in sexual activity with each other. Uh, there are some allegedly jealous feelings from a third party, and this third party calls the police. Uh, the police show up, bust into the bedroom where these two, two men were engaging in consensual activity with each other, and the police are like, aha, crime against nature. Mm. <laughs> it looks like you are two adult men doing sex things with each other. This will not stand. And so the police charge them with criminal offenses. Uh, fortunately, Lombada Legal, which is a, a wonderful uh, legal advocacy group for queer rights, uh, takes the case on, and this case goes to the Supreme Court. And ultimately, the court decides that what is at hand here is to adult humans engaging in mutually consented, mutually understood behavior in the privacy of their own of a of a dwelling, one of their dwellings. And that they have a certain privacy right in doing that. Uh, the, the exact logic the court goes through is, of course, much more complicated. This is the very fast version. But that's, that's the quick way to think about it. It's the court case that says consenting adults have the right to engage in non-procreative sexual activity with each other, whether, whether they are members of an opposite sex grouping or not. Uh, interestingly enough, there was a 
a concurrence to the majority opinion from Seattle J. O'Connor, who would have uh, overturned that law that the, the defendants were convicted on, not under that sort of privacy interest grounds, but under equal protection grounds. O'Connor argued that the problem here was that the law specifically prohibited and was being applied to same-sex activity, and that if Texas had a set of sodomy law that applied equally to everyone, then it would be fine, which is which is interesting. So that's that's the that's the decision we get out of the court. We get for this this mixture of a little bit equal protection, but largely due process privacy right grounds, this notion that states can't prohibit consenting adults from engaging in sexual activity with each other. So, you know, in the privacy of homes or other dwellings, if you're doing it in public, you've got laws against public indecency. But if you're doing it in private, it doesn't matter whether you're having anal sex or sex, penal vaginal sex, whatever sex stuff you're doing, as long as you're consenting. Honest sex. Good on you. Yeah. Um, and this was only 2003, right? This, this was the, only 2003, which good for it's people like, to bear in like... mind when people are thinking about <laughs> where exactly we are in the evolution of this legally and in how mm-hmm. queer sexuality is treated and given the protection of law um, and the history mm-hmm. of discrimination in, in America uh, vis-a-vis queer sexuality. Uh, an impact this has on animal law that, again, we don't generally talk about is, remember, a lot of these laws didn't actually say sodomy or didn't actually say same-sex sexual activity. These Some of these laws said unnatural crimes against nature or you know, the crime whose name we don't want to say. And those the laws detestable were and abominable crimes. Yes. And these, these laws were used to criminalize detestable and abominable crimes against nature. They were used to criminalize homosexual activity. They were used to criminalize all kinds of queer sexual activity. They were also used to criminalize bestiality, to criminalize animal sexual exploitation. And so when those laws become unconstitutional, it creates, in some states, a vacuum effect. And if states don't return to the state houses to pass new laws that say, okay, our laws that are unequally impacting same-sex individuals or our laws that are just prohibiting sodomy, whether it's same-sex or opposite different sex partners, now that those laws are gone, we're going to pass new laws that apply only to animal sexual exploitation. In states that didn't do that, you just ended up with a void where there was no longer a valid law that applied to animal sexual exploitation. Um, and that's that's where, in a handful of states, we still are today, um, where attempts to close that loophole haven't been successful, in part because, as we said, lawmakers are sometimes not eager ick. to have their names pop up. Yeah, ick, ew. I don't want my name to be in an article talking about how I'm trying to pass a law stopping sexual exploitation of animals. Some lawyers are afraid that it means they'll be, you know, the featured punchline and a joke on late night television. Um, I would argue that if that's the price you pay for passing laws to address animals in your jurisdiction, that is okay. That being a lawmaker is not easy. It's why it's a 
job that you have to try out for and get elected for. And part of that job is realizing that people might make fun of you on late night TV. That's just part of being a politician. Uh, but that argument has clearly not carried the day in every state. <laughs> uh, and of course, there are concerns from the animal agriculture lobby that always uh, every time anything any animal protection law <laughs> can count That's on right. them every to time. object. <laughs> yeah, even even though as those of you who've heard our earlier episodes will know, even though animal cruelty laws have exemptions written in that in a variety of ways exempt conduct that is a normal animal husbandry practice or is part and parcel of animal agriculture or that is simply a justifiable or necessary practice. So it would be very hard to see a scenario where uh, farmers are going to be prosecuted for artificially inseminating turkeys or pigs or cows. Um, but nonetheless, that's an objection that the uh, that we hear from animal ag. And it's why I think the best models of these animal sexual exploitation laws that are being passed in the modern era are very clear about what they are criminalizing and why. So really yeah. good examples of these laws will say something like, you know, it is criminal for a human to engage in sexual contact with an animal for the purposes of sexually gratifying themselves or another human. It's pretty clear. You can We can all understand what that means. And it's broad enough that it applies to either the person making sexual contact with the animal, themselves getting off on it, or them doing it for an audience that is finding that sexually appealing. It's both a pretty succinct and pretty clear law that should also make the animal agriculture lobby feel clear that we're not trying to you know, prohibit what they're doing with animals. Uh, trust me, uh, when I come for them, I will pass a law that says exactly mm -hmm. what I don't want them to do. It will be clear. Because <laughs> passing a law about sexual exploitation and trying to apply that to animal agriculture is problematic because that's not giving people a clear idea of what the law means. That's not a good way to write laws. And it's not a good way to enforce the law. We shouldn't be passing criminal laws that fool people about what the law is. That's a due process problem. That's a fundamental justice problem. So uh, please understand animal agriculture. Uh, when I want to stop you from doing something, and there are things I would like you to stop doing, uh, I will be very clear about that in the laws that I encourage people to pass. I like that you keep coming back to how important it is to craft legislation well and how that example that you used is kind of the sweet spot of like not not being too vague and but also leaving room uh, basically just being like that that good middle ground of what what uh what makes a good law and um i just want to point out that these these places where there are vacuums like it, it is important because as we've as we've said throughout this episode like this is happening like it's not some you know uh trivial thing that's not occurring and why do we need a law about that and to point out that there's a phenomenon called sex tourism and that does happen in places where that uh, didn't have bestiality laws like I was reading a lot I think Denmark is one that that was pretty famous for having well famous in this small <laughs> among a small sector of 
people pay attention to this stuff are having animal brothels and um and having a sex tourism kind of thing going on and they they sense have passed a bestiality law but like it's actually a thing that when there aren't laws on the books um you see this happening so i just wanted to to flag that as that's not inconsequential that that some states were left without laws against this yeah and and again it's this is not a hypothetical matter there are certainly conversations happening online i have seen threads on message boards where people are quite enthusiastically discussing the benefits of visiting or moving to states that lack uh laws prohibiting animal sexual exploitation um and this Gosh. is something I yes. pointed out in conversations with uh, various legislative consultants that mm. I understand that lawmakers may not want their name to pop up in a late night comedian's monologue about bestiality and laws prohibiting it. But would they rather their state be popular as a tourist destination for people who want to have sex with animals? Yeah. It was something I didn't realize until recently that people do move states to uh, to be closer to communities um, that engage in this activity. And um, I'm sure the lack of a law would be a reason why a place emerges as an attractive uh, relocation option. And you just reminded me of um, our, co our coworker, one of our coworkers who was at an animal rights conference some years ago and doing, having a table in this, this conference goer who came up and had kind of was asking her all these questions about where like, if bestiality is legal, like in his particular state. And like, he kept asking like all of these questions about it that were making her feel like it was a bit, um, oh, no. that he was asking for a particular reason. Yes. And, uh, it was a very like strange encounter, but you just reminded me of that when you were talking about these message boards with people, uh, like asking, Oh, where is this legal? <laughs> Maybe I'll go there. <laughs> Hi. Anyway, um, did you have anything more to say about Lawrence or any of those other things? Because, um, yeah. Well, I think, so I think Lawrence, Lawrence not only explains part of how we end up in a modern era of animal sexual exploitation law. It, it sweeps away some of the old bad laws and obligates states to either do the right thing and pass new better laws or to not pass laws at all, which isn't great. Um, and again, there's a handful of states left that fall into that category. Hopefully those, those are going to get taken care of soon. But Lawrence also, I think, inevitably tees up some additional legal issues. And it's, this harkens back to something we were discussing earlier, which is the degree to which defendants in these cases may want to compare themselves to the queer rights movement or compare their legal position to that of the defendants in Lawrence versus Texas, who again were two adult men engaging in consensual private activity. Um, and Nicole, I know you, you came up with a case where that, like that, those arguments actually happen. Like the defendant in an animal sexual exploitation case actually just straight up says, as I understand it, straight up says, Lawrence versus Texas means you can't find me guilty. Yes, exactly. I, I wrote about this for um, an animal law update a couple years ago. It was um, a Virginia case where they were trying to, yes, exactly, assert that uh, Lawrence um, 
Basically, uh, the person's name was Warren. Uh, they argued that the reasoning of the of the Lawrence case applied to his case because private acts of sodomy between consenting adults are basically the same as private sexual activity by adults involving animals. And um, this, and so he basically argued that after Lawrence, Virginia can't criminalize these sexual activities, and therefore he was challenging, Virginia had passed a bestiality law in the wake of um, Lawrence, and he was contending that that law was unconstitutional as applied to him. And so this person, Warren, was charged with violating uh, Virginia's bestiality law after he videotaped encounters that he had with a woman and her dog. And so on appeal, he, he challenged the law. Um, again, arguing it violated his due process rights and that it criminalized this sort of private sexual conduct of consenting adults. So the appeal so very court, much the arguments this, from Lawrence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, I think, yeah, as the the court, the appeals court disagreed, and you know they ruled that the dog was not a consenting adult, basically. And so this is. Um, the court writing and the decision, the conduct at issue here involved something other than only consenting adults. It involved sexual activity with a dog. The addition of the dog fundamentally alters the equation, and thus the claimed right is broader than the right of consenting adults to engage in non-commercial sex acts in private. It necessarily includes the claim to a right to engage in sexual acts with an animal. And so um, they rejected that comparison to uh, the anisotomy provisions that were struck down in that SCOTUS case. And, you know, they say, the court says straight up, this is a quote, we reject the attempt to equate private sexual acts among consenting adults with sexual acts between humans and animals. Warren has not identified any court that has concluded that bestiality is a fundamental liberty interest protected by the due process clause. And we decline his invitation to recognize bestiality as a fundamental right. So um, in addition to saying that the bestiality law didn't intrude upon a fundamental right. They also talked about how the state has a legitimate interest in preventing cruelty to animals. The court also cited a uh, 2017 law review article that noted most recent bestiality laws are categorized as animal cruelty statutes, which um, they talked about the fact that bestiality is believed to be a crime against an animal and that it's not, it's not, um, you know, they contrasted it with the older laws that categorized it as a crime against morality or nature. And so, yeah, they um, were not buying that argument. And they also, they talked about, in addition to the state having an interest in protecting animals, they said that bestiality uh, can be considered animal abuse because the sexual molestation of animals by humans may physically injure or kill the animal victim. And um, again, they noted that because they're categorized as animal cruelty statutes, they said this demonstrates the belief that it's a crime against an animal. So um, that was a swing and a miss there in terms of trying to say that bestiality was um, decriminalized um, with the Lawrence decision. Yeah, and that it's a really that's a really interesting opinion from the the appellate court uh, and. I'm glad the argument was raised because I'm glad we got an opinion dealing with this as someone who yeah. finds it very offensive, finds the, the, the comparison of sexual activity between consenting adults with 
non-consensual sexual activity. Very offensive, very troubling. Uh, yes, it really gets at this animal's the, not an object. <laughs> right. Uh, but I, I generally, I find the, the argument that tries to equate queer sexuality with pedophilia or with bestiality to be incredibly insulting to an incredibly wide amount of people. Um, and so I think one of the interesting things about this opinion is you know, that line you highlighted about how this isn't simply sexual conduct between two consenting adults. It's sexual conduct between two consenting adults and a dog. And mm -hmm. implicit in that is, and a dog who can't consent. Mm -hmm. If, if uh, the defendant in this case and his adult companion, his, his adult human companion had a dog sex toy, they would have been fine. They could do all the sex stuff they want with a doggy blow-up doll. They could have sex with any non-living object they want. They could have sex with a plant because plants are, you know, of course, not animals. Um, but they can't have sex with a sentient animal that doesn't, and at least at this point in our law, cannot consent. That is yeah. that is a fundamental difference, um, and I think that that really does point us to something really important here, which is the modern strain, as you said, Nicole, the modern strain of cruelty law of, of animal sexual exploitation law is about, you know, in the court's word, it's about animal protection. It's about sometimes these sexual acts with animals physically harm the animal. Uh, but beyond that, a notion that implicit in all of this is that the animal can't consent and that there's something problematic about taking advantage of an animal for one's own benefit in a way that doesn't do anything good for the animal. You know, that's exploitive and that is not acceptable. And I, I know that the rejoinder that we're going to hear is, but we exploit animals in all kinds of ways. We take away their children. We take away their eggs. We take away their milk. We kill them and eat them. We do all kinds of stuff with animals. And some of the things we do with animals that they don't consent for is absolutely for their own good. Uh, I... I had, at earlier points in my life, I was uh, fortunate enough to share my life with some ferrets, and ferrets are, are delightful creatures. Um, but my ferrets, as many ferrets do, had problems with waxy buildup in their ears. So every week oh. I would do ferret ear cleaning. And oh, they hated ferret ear cleaning. It was the worst part about being a ferret. And they would scrunch up their tiny ferret faces and make very disgruntled noises. And then they'd get some ferret treats and it would all be fine. Certainly they did not consent to me cleaning their ears. But it was important. If I didn't do that, ultimately their ears would get plugged up. They'd get ear infections. It would be very bad for their health. Uh, you know, similarly, I know, Nicole, you and I both have dogs that are cancer survivors. Um, and I know, you know Ace, my, my dog, he didn't have the capacity to understand that I was taking him to the vet for surgery to have a tumor removed. He certainly didn't have the capacity to consent to that. All he knew was we went to the vet, and he loves the vet, but... 
they knocked him out. They and he woke up with an injury, and it didn't feel good. Um, so I don't think I can fairly say he consented to it, but I believe I can say it wasn't exploitive because I wasn't doing it just because I want him around. I was doing it. It served his benefit. I was doing. He was. And getting you have something his best interest in mind. Yeah, that's right. a huge and distinction that's between different. those other examples, the institutional context where we're killing animals and for food and all other manner of commercial exploitation versus if you're a guardian of an animal and you're looking out for their best interests and you're having to make decisions that they cannot understand. But like you said, they're for their well-being and those are just very different um, sort of overriding, overriding consent like we do with children because, you know, children can't meaningfully consent to a lot of medical procedures and things like that. And um, that's good. That's a good version. But then the overriding consent in those other um, exploitive uh, systemic context is it's it's very hypocritical, I guess, for for people who get sort of up in arms about <laughs> that animals can't consent to sexual activity, but then think it's fine that they that we override their consent in these um, industrial contexts. But again, that's not our yeah, view. That's... Um, yeah, it's not it's not the view you and I share. The view and I you and I share is that we shouldn't be exploiting animals at all. Uh, mm -hmm. That we should be. You know, there are some animals who who probably want nothing to do with us, so that's cool. They should be out there doing their thing. Um, and there are other animals who really enjoy or need to, you know, live alongside humans, and we should be yeah. taking care of them and enjoying their company. Um, some are dependent I, I know, on us completely, right? Domestication, and, and in so some we ways, have a responsibility you know, a them, to them. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of them have been. They have literally developed alongside humanity, whether humans have been deliberately breeding them, whether humans deliberately domesticated them, or whether it was a sort of mutual process of uh, civilization, as as some people argue dogs and cats experienced. Uh, these are animals that can't fairly and safely just go out and live their lives completely separate from humanity. Um, and there is something troubling about the notion that we look at animal consent as important when it comes to sexual exploitation, but we don't mm -hmm. ask whether animal consent is important when it comes to exploiting animals for meat or dairy or eggs or fiber or entertainment or any one of a number of other things. And there are going to be commentators, I know there are commentators, I've read commentaries saying, well, so that that means that animal sexual exploitation laws are bad laws. We shouldn't have them. Or that means that uh, we should, it means that we need to figure out how to apply the same framework to every law. And I think the truth is a little more complicated and a little more nuanced. And this is, this is how I look at it. Give us uh, the truth, David. Yeah, the truth. Lay it on. Yes. Here, here it is. <laughs> truth telling us. Um, so my, my feeling is this. All of these laws identify the exploitation of animals as being fundamentally wrong. You know, whether the animals are being exploited in a way that uh, uses them for sexual, sexual pleasure of a human or whether animals are being exploited in a way that causes them to die or causes them to experience suffering in the service of 
food, commerce, and whatnot. The difference is that in some of those cases, we as a society are saying, we know it's wrong, but we're willing to do it anyway. And I think that's important. Uh, I would like society to reach a different conclusion. I would like a society to say, we know it's wrong, and so we're going to stop doing it. But that's not the way the law works. You know, the law mirrors, to a certain degree, where society is and what society is prepared to accept. And we should, at the very least, then demand that the law lives up to our standards as society. So, for example, when we look at animal cruelty law writ large, let's go back to our, our two big categories, animal neglect and animal abuse, crimes of omission and crimes of commission. And let's focus in on those crimes of commission, animal abuse. We know that when it comes to committing an act of sexual exploitation on an animal, that society is not prepared to say that is acceptable, that society is effectively saying the animal doesn't consent, the animal cannot consent, it is not appropriate to exploit the animal in that way. We also know that society says that it is generally unlawful, it is generally cruel, it is animal abuse in general to cause an animal suffering, to cause an animal injury, to mutilate an animal, to cause an animal to die in certain ways. We also know that animals are mutilated, suffer, and die legally all the time. Mm -hmm. And that isn't saying the suffering is okay. It's not saying the underlying mutilation is okay. It's saying the underlying mutilation and the underlying suffering is wrong, but that we are going to put up with that wrong because we like what we're getting out of it. It is us acknowledging the monstrousness of our system and us saying that is something that we accept. And if we as a society are no longer prepared to accept that, we should change the law. It's not about us being, I don't read that as us being inconsistent around animal consent. I think it's about whether or not we are willing to look ourselves in the mirror as a society and say, yeah, we do awful stuff to animals. And we're going to keep doing it as long as we think it's worthwhile. I'm going to say we're still not honest there because often we find these unnecessary written before the suffering. And I think that that is, it's not true. It's not true that this is uh, necessary. It's a social construct. And like, this is a way to weasel out of the responsibility too, and, and sort of acting like, oh, there's no possible way to get around this. <laughs> like, there's no alternative. Right. So earlier, Nicole, you asked if I had any other thoughts on Lawrence, and I may have been a little a little hasty in saying that I was done with Lawrence, um, because one of the things, and this is, this is going to sound familiar given that I just had a mini rant for everyone uh, about how irked I am when people argue that because uh, Lawrence legalizes activity between consenting adults, therefore, uh, it's going to le it should legalize activity between uh, you know, non-consenting parties. That argument isn't just one made by the defendant in the Virginia case. That argument was actually made in Lawrence by the late Justice Antonin Scalia in his dissent. Lawrence says, 
well, I'm, I'm upset the majority is going to let these gay men have sex and not be criminalized for it, because if we do that, then the next thing will be having to legalize um, you know, bestiality and obscenity uh, and all manner of things. Slope. There's a whole list of stuff that's going to be that's very troubling to Antonin Scalia. Um, huh. you know, some of which has been legalized, like same-sex marriage. Sorry, Ghost of Antonin and Scalia. You lost that one. Um, and some of it is really hard to figure out why he would think a decision that is based on what consenting adults are doing in private would have any impact on these other laws. So we've talked about how for bestiality laws, for laws around sexual animal, animal sexual exploitation, Lawrence doesn't apply. Lawrence also wouldn't apply to obscenity. Um, and Scalia should know that. Uh, I have to assume he did know that because obscenity has long been carved out as a area of free speech that is unprotected. Scalia, of course, wrote opinions about how obscenity was unprotected speech. And this comes up in relation to how animals and humans interact around issues of sex, or more particularly, how humans exploit animals sexually. And this is around the issue of crush videos, which we're going to break out as a separate subtopic right now, because it's a little different than humans sexually exploiting animals in the other ways we've discussed. Crush videos are not about humans having sex with animals or making sexual contact with animals. Crush videos are essentially animal snuff films. Uh, they are videos or still images of a performer. Uh, usually the performer is a woman uh, torturing usually an animal uh, while engaging in sexualized erotic conversation. There's usually some sort of dominatrix pattern like, oh, you like it when I do this. You deserve to get hurt. You deserve to be crushed. You deserve to be stabbed. Um, mm -hmm. And this is consumed by an audience that finds it erotic, that finds it sexually stimulating. And for any one person who is into crush videos who finds that sexually stimulating, there are, are probably a variety of reasons, but at least some of the research seems to indicate that the audience for crush videos identifies with the mm -hmm. crushy, not the crusher. So yeah. they like thinking of themselves in the position of the animal being tortured, the animal being abused. And sometimes the crushy is not an animal. The, the community of crush video aficionados differentiates between so-called a soft crush and hard crush videos. Soft crush features uh, either inanimate objects being crushed, jello, balloons, mashed potatoes, things like that, or invertebrates being crushed, bugs and whatnot. Whereas hard crush videos are very much about vertebrate animals being tortured and killed. Um, you know, puppies. Why being can't stabbed, they just stick kittens. to Jello? I, 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 this I do not know. I, it is not a paraphilia that I have been to. It is not my kink. I do not have the answer for that. Um, and I don't know if there's been enough research on that to really get into it. I mean, clearly, it is something that people find sexually appealing. Some people are sexually into that. Um, I don't know whether 
It was kind of a rhetorical question, but I hear you. I mean, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question to a certain extent. It was a wish. Get back to this. Can you please stick to mashed potatoes? Fair enough. Yeah, just just have people sit on mashed potatoes while they're wearing corsets, and that's your kink. Um, I, mean, I think we can get into this if we want to talk about what treatment options might be for people who are convicted of sexual cruelty to animals um, or convicted of offenses related to crush videos. Uh, I know there is a certain body of research people are trying to do around similar offenses, looking at whether you could substitute something else to meet that sexual desire that is not going to involve harm to a creature. Yeah, um, I've read about like using robots and stuff for different things. And there's these arguments of like, does it sort of amplify the sexual desire or does it substitute it? You know, there's like, there's like different yeah. kinds of research I've read. Maybe it was particularly about violence. I don't know. I read something about like, does the substitute work as a substitute or does it ramp up? Like, does it make you want to do it even more? Right. You know does I mean? it cause escalation? And that's, escalation, I don't know the answer to that. And I think you've, you've looked into the research on that more closely than I have. I do know that's a topic that comes up in this area. And I think it's yeah the answer to your rhetorical question, I think is similar. Like does, does seeking out inanimate does crushies, it start with yellow? Yeah, I've wondered that. Right, or would that would that be a substitute that would work? I don't know. Like, um, are the people who watch the Jello mashed potatoes and balloon videos a different, qualitatively different than the ones who watch, or are they perhaps about to go to the next level, if you will, of like watching? And like, I have no idea. I didn't know any. I didn't even know there was Jello crush videos till you told me this last week. So yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I don't just, know the answer to that. And I, it may, similar to some of the studies around bestiality, it, it, people who are sexually excited by animals, it may be hampered by the fact that it's a criminal activity that is also really taboo. So I suspect there's not as much research as one might want to get valid sample sizes to know the answer. And there are probably... There are probably aficionados of crush videos who would say, really, all I'm into is soft crush. I never want to see someone step on a kitten wearing high-heeled shoes and stab the kitten to death with stiletto heels. There might be someone else who says, all I want to see is puppies get hurt. There might be someone who says, well, I started with Jello and I moved up towards fish and then dogs and cats and chickens. I, I don't know. Um, and I suspect that, again, individuals are going to have different trajectories. Um, we do know that that community exists. Um, we know those videos, well, that media has been a thing basically since before home video existed. Um, people were taking images, initially still images of animal torture, um, mm. but this really boomed when home video became something that was technologically viable um, with home video digital recording. And it really took off with the internet because that meant that members, members of crush video communities, people who enjoy crush videos, didn't have to mail them to each other through the post service. Uh, they didn't have to put them on videotape and send them around or send packets mm -hmm. of photos. They could instead just download and upload videos on the internet. And it made it a lot easier for geographically distributed people to form communities, to trade that content. And it made it a lot easier for them to buy that content from people producing the videos. And the people who produce the videos are not always, or I think even often, 
people who get off on the videos. Um, oftentimes, it seems that these are people making the videos for profit, um, and, uh, or you know, the performers in the videos, who again tend to be women, uh, may be working for uh, video producers. Um, you know, in some cases, they may be manipulated or trafficked into producing these videos themselves. Um, in other cases, they may be fully enthusiastic participants. Again, it depends on the individual, depends on the video. But we know it's happening. We know that um, with, the rise, with the accessibility of the internet, this began to be a larger and larger, or at least more and more evident phenomenon. And uh, so in the 90s, Congress took notice and Congress was like, well, we, we're not terribly fond of this happening. Let's do something about it. Um, and part of Congress's concern was it's relatively difficult to get at the underlying act because it's not always easy to figure out where the performers are. So you don't always know what jurisdiction to charge them in. Sometimes they're in a foreign jurisdiction, whereas the consumers are in America. Um, so we'll criminalize the videos. We'll criminalize the content. We'll say that producing or distributing a video or photos of an animal being seriously injured in these ways uh, is a crime. And if you are thinking to yourself, why, David, Nicole, that sounds an awful lot like a restraint on speech, oh, you would be right. It is a restraint on speech. And inevitably, it runs headlong into a free speech issue. So anytime the government is making a law that says what kind of videos or photos you can take or you can distribute, that's about regulating speech. Videos and photos are examples of speech. Some speech is protected, other speech isn't. For example, obscenity has never been protected speech in the United States. Um, and there's a very specific notion of what obscenity is. Over time, we've had a lot of debates about what, what constitutes obscenity. Currently, for something to be obscene, it needs to be obscene under what is known as the Miller test, uh, a test announced in the case of the same name. Uh, not to go into the great details on this, but the short version is obscenity needs to have a sexual component, or at least that's how it's often presented. I would argue that it's a little more complicated than that under Miller, but for the sake of simplicity, we'll say that obscenity in America is sexual. We know that violence is not. Um, mm. Violence is not obscene in America. Um, and violence is not unprotected speech. Uh, the key case on this is Brown versus Entertainment Merchants, which concerns attempts to regulate violence in video games. And in that case, the court says, if the speech is obscene, if you have violence plus obscenity, you can regulate it. But if it's just violence by itself, it's not inherently unprotected speech, and it's deserving of the same kind of protections other kinds of speech get. Doesn't mean you can't regulate it in certain ways, but you can only regulate it narrowly. Uh, and so in, crush, in the case of crush videos, the rub is that the law Congress initially passed just said it's illegal to produce or traffic images of animals being hurt in these ways. Didn't say anything about sex. Didn't say anything about obscenity. And in fact, the Department of Justice, oop, let me roll back one second, didn't say anything about sex, didn't say anything about obscenity. Uh, to his credit, President uh, then-President Bill Clinton, when he signed the law, uh, did attach a signing statement saying, look, 
I think this law is really about obscene conduct. It's about these sexualized videos. Mm. This is just what we're going to use the law for. Those presidential signing statements, of course, have really zero weight in law. And indeed, uh, in due course, under a subsequent administration, the Department of Justice prosecuted someone under the crush video law for videos that weren't crush videos. Uh, they pros they prosecuted uh, a Mr. Stevens for distributing videos of dog fighting. These videos include dog fight dogs fighting each other and dogs fighting pigs. Uh, there's some argument about whether those videos were of conduct that was legal when the videos were made or whether the, the conduct was illegal when the videos were made. Stevens said, you know, these are these are videos of dog fights that happened in a country and time when those were legal. These are videos of dogs hunting or fighting pigs in a time and place where it was legal. The Department of Justice said, uh, nuh-uh, no, it's not. But really, was he producing them? Matters. Or he um, just had them. I don't recall I don't whether he was producing them. He had a a business selling dog fighting related mm. material. Um, mm -hmm. He wrote a book um, and sold a book called Dogs of Velvet and Steel. Um, oh, right. Extolling the virtues of dog fighting um, and the virtues of certain dogs as, as good dog fighters. Uh, mm. So this was part of his commercial enterprise. I don't recall whether he you know, went out and did the videos himself. I think at least in some cases, he was sort of a third party distributor. Uh, but this goes to the court and the court and the Department of Justice arguing uh, for the law essentially asks the court to hold that violence against animals uh, or uh, violence against animals is a new unprotected category of speech. They ask the court to do for animal violence what the court had recently done for child pornography in uh, the Ferber case. Uh, and in Ferber, the court decided that um, in addition to obscenity on the list of unprotected speech, child pornography would be added to the list, whether that pornography was obscene or not. You may be asking yourself, what exactly is non-obscene child pornography? Mm -hmm. That is not exactly clear. Um, but we do know that if you come up with child pornography that is not obscene, it's still something that is unprotected. And so the, the Department of Justice was basically asking the court to do the same thing for depictions of animal violence, and the court ultimately wasn't having it. Um, how they reached that decision and why is a whole podcast in its own right, and it's really exciting. For our purposes, all we need to know is the court said, look, we've already told you that violence is protected speech, your law here looks like it's about violence. It's about violence towards animals. It's not about sex stuff. It's not about obscenity. And you can't really claim it's just about sex stuff because you're prosecuting someone for making videos that have nothing to do with sex stuff. So go away. Your law is unconstitutional. Um, and Congress uh, takes note of this. Uh, it takes note of the fact that very shortly after Stevens, uh, crush video web starts start emerging from uh, what I think we would now know is the dark web, emerging from corners mm -hmm. of the internet where they had gone into hiding. And Congress is like, well, we need to do something about this. What did the court say the problem was? Well, the court said that uh, the law wasn't dealing with unprotected obscenity. So what if we pass a new version of our crush video law that says it is illegal to distribute 
uh, to traffic or produce a video of animals being hurt in this way if the video is also obscene. Let's try that. And mm. President Obama signs that law uh, into force. And uh, inevitably, the defense in the one of the cases prosecuted under this law raises the same arguments in Stevens. And uh, this case is Richard's Justice. One of the defendants is Richard's, the other is Justice. Uh, they are producing a series of videos uh, involving puppies and kittens being tortured um, while the uh, being tortured by a woman wearing um, sort of lingerie um, and high heels and a mask. Uh, and the animals are, as she's torturing them, the animals are being subject to sort of this sexualized conversation. The defense argues this this is not sex stuff as far as obscenity is concerned. You know, the defense says you can't see any more of this woman than you would be able to see if she was at a beach. She's not, in fact, she's wearing more clothing than people wear at the beach. She's wearing what amounts to a bikini plus a mask and shoes. She's even more covered than she would be in public. And she's not touching the animal sexually. Sure, she's engaging in some sexual talk, but that's not itself about having sex. It's not about sexual activity. This is not obscene. The court at the trial level buys that argument, but the Fifth Circuit does not. On appeal, the Fifth Circuit says, we do think this falls under the category of obscene speech, and we, so we think the law is constitutional. And they got there in two main ways. First, they said, Congress wrote obscenity into the law. Yes, Congress did not put the entire constitutional obscenity test in the law. Yes, Congress didn't say obscenity, and by that we mean sex stuff. But we assume that when Congress passes laws that use legal phrases like obscenity, we, we assume they know what they're talking about. And so we're going to assume they meant obscenity in the legally substantive sense of the word. We assume they meant constitutional obscenity. And we think that Richards and Justice were engaged in constitutionally obscene conduct because even though you can't see anything more of the performer than you would out on a beach, even though there's no contact with the anal genital region of an animal or a human, this is still conduct designed to arouse the sexual desire of someone. The conduct designed to speak to, in the words of the Miller test, the prurient interest. And so the Fifth Circuit says, ultimately, we think this is about sex stuff. This is obscene. It's a valid restraint on speech, therefore, and the law stands. And that's where things are right now with Crush Videos. Um, They've been expanded a bit in 2019, at the end of the year. Uh, the PACT Act went into law, and that is a federal law that adds on to existing crush video law by criminalizing the underlying animal torture, the underlying animal mm. injury. So previously it, it was... Crime. Right, yeah, exactly. So with mm. Richards and Justice, they were making their videos in Texas. So when they were arrested, the feds tried them for making crush videos. The crime they were charged with federally was videotaping and selling those videos. 
they were also tried at the state level for animal cruelty. They were tried with, you know, they were charged with actually torturing the animals. The PACT Act would make it a federal crime both to do the videotaping and distribution and also to do the animal torture. Um, and so that's that's where we are right now with crush videos. The crush video law is constitutional as a uh, you know, restraint on unprotected obscene speech. And the underlying conduct is a federal crime, assuming it happens in a way that you know, implicates interstate, intertribal, or foreign commerce, because the feds always need to have an interstate, intertribal, foreign commerce hook when they're regulating that kind of activity. Yeah, so the PACT Act makes animal cruelty a federal crime if there's the interstate commerce piece, basically, or is it specific types of animal cruelty, or is it just sort of what we see at the state level elevated to the federal level if there's an interstate commerce part? So it gets a little complicated. Okay, uh, then never mind. <laughs> well, I can give you a, sh a short version. The short version is okay. there are a few examples of animal cruelty that are definitely illegal under the PACT Act. Crushing, burning, suffocation, for example, are all specifically enumerated. But then we also get a broader statement that basically amounts to significant animal injury, serious bodily mm -hmm. harm, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, you do still need that interstate, foreign, or tribal commerce hook. And as with state law, the PACT Act has exemptions for hunting, mm -hmm. for animal husbandry, for research and that kind of thing. It is still notable because it's the first nationally applicable cruelty law we've ever had. Um, yeah. At least the first you know, nationally applicable law that is generally about cruelty. We had laws about animal fighting that were nationally applicable. This is the first one that is broadly applicable to all of those acts of commission, all of those affirmative acts, or I would argue bad enough acts of omission. If you neglect an animal to the point where that animal's organs start shutting down, you are causing that animal to experience significant bodily harm. So I, I would feel comfortable arguing that under the PACT Act, certain kinds of animal neglect are federal crimes if they have that interstate, foreign, tribal commerce piece. Mm -hmm. And that that is a whole more complex issue, which would be, uh, again, probably its own uh, podcast in its own right, or maybe we can wrap it up in our, if we do a bonus episode of uh, listener questions or stuff Nicole and David want to talk about more, maybe we'll, we'll hit it there. <laughs> yeah, great. Thanks for that explanation. And you said you, you've been kind of thinking about this a lot recently too, right? Like what kind of, what types of things could be brought under? Because it's a relatively new law. Yeah. Pact Act. Yeah. The Pact Act is only, it got signed into law almost at the, in the closing days of 2019, in December 2019. Mm. So it went into effect beginning of 2020. And uh, as with a lot of criminal laws that went into effect during this, our year of plague, uh, we <laughs> haven't seen as much activity with them as we would otherwise, because the court system and law enforcement has been preoccupied with things like a global pandemic. Uh, so mm -hmm. I will be curious to see where those laws go in the long run. Yeah, definitely. Um, this is probably a good place to to wrap up since we've been talking for a while. Um, I don't know if we have any specific closing thoughts. I think, you know, I thought, you know, I think we had a note that we would talk about sort of animals' legal status and also like, you know, 
the lack of sort of the consent issue, but I feel like we have talked about consent here and there throughout. I don't know that I have any more like thoughts on that issue at this point. Um, yeah, I think I think it is a good through line connecting our conversation on animal sexual exploitation, actual sexual contact with animals, and crush video style sexual exploitation, animal stuff films. And that is that in both cases, the law is clearly treating animals as something different than an object. The law is clearly not treating animals as things. Now, again, if someone wants to have sex with an animal sex doll, that person is perfectly able to do so. It will not violate an animal sexual exploitation law. If someone wants to watch a video, distribute a video, make a video of them crushing balloons, mashed potatoes, jello, plants, they can do that. They are not going to fall afoul of the PACT Act or the Crush Video Law. These laws address animals differently, and they address animals because the law is acknowledging haltingly and sometimes not explicitly. Sometimes the law seems afraid to speak the name of this thing, um, of this component, but the law is beginning to acknowledge what I think most of us intuitively know, which is animals are not things. Animals are not objects. Animals are living, feeling creatures. And in the case of laws like these, their experiences matter and their capacities matter. And that's ultimately what the law should be about. So there's more work to be done around the law, but I think the good news is the law is starting to pay attention to the right things about animals. And this is some example of how that's happening. Yeah, a lot of times with animals legal status, we do talk about how there's in the law often not enough of a distinction between, um, or we say there is a distinction between uh, things and um on one side and sentient beings on the other. And sometimes animals get caught kind of in this middle ground where it's, they're not clar clearly recognized under the law as non-things or as beings. And these laws that we've been talking about, I think are, as you pointed out, at least one example of where it's very, the law is very clear that animals are not things. And so for what it's worth, <laughs> I don't have a good thought to conclude that with. <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> do we so our listeners may not realize this this will probably go into like that page we do it. Out. We've been like we've been <laughs> crunching to to work on some of our podcasts and outlines. So I feel like Nicole have been talking and I've been talking about <laughs> awful stuff that happens to animals with each other across video chat for like I don't know, the last the last few days straight, which is an exaggeration, yeah, and, but it feels that way. And I've been reading about this the last couple of days straight too, just because I didn't know oh, that much sure. about this issue. And there's, there's so much. So when I just peel one thing back and then, you know, it's like, um, so yeah, it's very, my head is very full of this right now. And um, I think, feel like. And our listeners' heads are probably also very full of this because uh, <laughs> it's going to be multiple hours by the time this is edited down. I don't know exactly how long it'll be. I'll leave that to our valiant producers who take all of this put it together, make it sound coherent. Um, but dear, dear listeners, we will leave you with our thanks for paying attention to this, this squeaky but really important topic. And our thanks for being willing to really think critically about the issues implicated here. We look forward to you joining us next time on Animals Advocate.
No. <laughs> or animals and the casino. Damn it! I knew the name of our friend, of our podcast. <laughs> it was so good. That was that was excellent until it wasn't. <laughs> Nicole, do you want to do you want to tell us the name of the podcast we're on? My mind is is becoming yeah. Busy. Yeah, mine too. Um, but I think it's Animal <laughs> Amicus. And um, yeah, once again, we're gonna we'll we'll have some stuff in the show notes so you can take a deeper dive into um, all the stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk about today. So see you next time. Cheers.